Do people really share their deepest secrets when they're drunk? This pre-war rabbi of the city of Dvinsk was a genius. But why didn't he ever take a haircut? This is Rabbi Yosef Rosen. What does Chai mean? And why do so many Jews wear a necklace or bracelet with these two letters, Chai? What is the significance of Chai? And how is it related to the number 18? What does a microscope got, have got to do with today's lesson about secret codes? Welcome to Lunch and Learn number 202. It's Rabbi Heshi here and time for a session of Torah study. Today's topic is secret codes of the Torah. What is embedded, encoded behind, deep into the Torah's words and we will begin with a blessing. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Shalom Niyabidvaro. Welcome, Carolina. Welcome, Hank. Welcome, Amy. Welcome, everybody joining on to our weekly session where we explore a topic from a Jewish perspective. It takes about sixty minutes, and hopefully, we emerge with a better understanding of that topic using a source sheet in English with traditional sources presented in a simple, seamless manner. And I welcome you all to join. Today's topic is secret codes. We'll talk about a concept, an idea, a method called gematria. And we will explore different examples, what's behind this method, and see how there are things that are not clearly visible, noticeable by us, but we dig a little deeper and we find that this book that was gifted to us, to the Jewish people, the Torah, the Bible, has so much depth to it, and hopefully we will highlight some of those examples. So, as usual, we have a source sheet, and on this post there is a link to today's source sheet. If you are on our email list, check your email, print out the source sheet to be able to follow along as we will uh, jump in. Another question we'll talk about is, is there significance or what is the significance to saying a blessing or a prayer in Hebrew if we don't understand what we're saying? I mean, if we're blessed to know Hebrew and understand the words, that's great. But what if someone does not yet understand? Would it be significant to me if I would say something in Chinese or Japanese or some foreign language that I do not understand? Why is Hebrew any different for a Jew to say a prayer and read the prayer book in a language which is not comprehensible at the moment. Is there significance? And what is that significance? We'll touch upon that topic as well. Hello, Mark. And uh, we're going to get uh, right in. Torah was given to us 3,335 years ago at Mount Sinai. The Torah is God's wisdom. God is infinite and his book, his wisdom is infinite. So in this book, although it contains a precise amount of letters, there are 304,805 letters in every Torah scroll around the world. Those are the five books of Moses. However, there is so much depth hidden, encoded, embedded in this book. And we will talk about one element of these these codes, and we'll touch upon a couple others. And this is known as gematria. So we will doing, be doing a little bit of math, but even if not, 
we will give uh, examples which will bring to light some of the traditional areas of Jewish life today which are impacted by this method of coding. So here we go, we're going to jump right in to source number one, which is a quote from the Talmud in Tractate Sukkah. Source number one, Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was one of the greatest leaders that lived for the Jewish people around the time of the destruction of the Second Temple. So that's under uh, 2,000 years ago. He lived a long life, till 120 years. He's buried in the city of Tiberias, Tiberia, on the Sea of the Galil, on the Kinneret. I had the merit of visiting his grave. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai great man, the Talmud testifies, he did not neglect Torah, Mishnah, Gemara, Halachos, and Gimatrios. So we find this term, Gimatria, in the Talmud, describing the great knowledge of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. He was not just proficient in the Torah text, in the Talmud, in Mishnah, all kinds of areas, it says, astronomy and Gimatria. First mention. Another mention, continuing in source number one, there are 32 methods to studying Torah, to elucidating the Torah. There are 32 methods. Number 29 is Gimatria. So some places it lists 13. And in this Mishnah, in this um, Baraita, I guess, going back uh, 1600 years approximately, it lists 32 methods of elucidating the Torah. And number 29 is something called Gimatria. So what is gematria? In short, gematria is probably, perhaps related to the Greek word geometry, something to do with numbers, but it's more specific. Gematria refers to Hebrew numerology, Jewish numerology, where is, where it, that is that every letter in the Hebrew alphabet has a numerical value, represents a number. And if you are on our email, I attached a picture of a chart, but I'll show it here briefly. Here you have the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So Aleph and Bet, let's talk about the first two, would be one and two. Gimel is the third letter, three uh, Dalit is 4, and so on until the letter Yud, which is 10. And then it starts jumping um, to uh, 10 at a time, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, until we get to 100. And then it starts jumping by the 100s till 400, which is the highest number represented in the Jewish letter. So every letter has a number. So in Hebrew, we don't use the number signs, the Arabic uh, number signs, those are maybe a thousand years old. We talk about, this is going back thousands of years, the Hebrew language, the letters are used as numbers as well, because every letter has a number. So if you want to say chapter one, you'll say chapter Aleph, because Aleph is the number one, it's the first letter and it's also number one. Chapter 10 would be chapter Yud. Yud is the 10th letter and the letter which represents the number 10. If you want to say chapter 100, you'll say chapter Kuf. If you want to say chapter 101, you'll say Kuf Aleph. Kuf is 100, Aleph is 1, that makes 101. And so on and so forth. The numbers is what 
is the letters are used as numbers. So today on the Jewish calendar is the twenty eighth day of the month of Av. So I would say we would say today is Kaf or Chaf Chet. Kaf is twenty. Chet is eight. Twenty eighth day of Av. It's the twenty eighth day. It's Chaf Ches Av. Twenty eight. So the letters are used as numbers, and you can combine the the letters to make a higher number than the highest letter. The highest letter is tough, which is 400. If you want to say 800, you do tough, tough. Two times tough, that's twice 400, you got 800. And so on. That is gematria. And we'll give, uh, we'll talk about that more, but simple, that's what gematria is. Some say that the word gematria is made up of two words, um, in Aramaic, which is gay, which is a valley, Maturaya is a mountain, and maybe it, perhaps it shows that something which is so small, like a valley, grows into a mountain. Because if every letter has a number, so every word also has a number. So if Aleph is one and Bet is two, so if you take the Hebrew word Av, which means father, Aleph Bet, which spells father, then you have this word makes up the number three. And three can be related to another word, which also has the same numerical value. Okay, we'll give some more examples. That's what Gematria basically is. Let's take a look at source number two. The calculations of Gematria are the deserts of wisdom. Now, there are various opinions what... Gematria in this source actually refers to, but according to many commentaries, it does refer to the Gematria that we're talking about, the numerical value of every letter, and it's referred to as desserts. Just like the condiments that people are accustomed to eating at the end of the meal for dessert in the manner of a treat. So this method of understanding the Torah, and we'll get to it soon, is like a dessert. It is not the main meal. You cannot get full of eating ice cream all day. You have to have something more substantial, something more nutritious. But it is a dessert, it is an appetizer, something which enhances, adds flavor, something delicious, but not as important as the meal itself. And so too, this method of studying, elucidating the Torah with gematria, looking at the, the number, numerical value of a word or a letter, that is like a dessert, but not the main course. So, let's get more clear. Chai. We mentioned that people wear a necklace. Chet Yud. Chet Yud. Chai means life. What does that have to do with 18? People give charity in increments of 18. Because the way you spell Chai in Hebrew is two Hebrew letters. Chet Yud. Chet is number 8. Yud is 10. 10 plus 8 is 18. So the number 18 is related to the word Chai, which is life. Someone gives charity 18, he's giving the charity of life, because 18 is the numerical value of the word chai. And the same thing goes with every word in Hebrew, every word in the Torah. There is the meaning of the word, and then there is the number of the word. Your name, how your name is spelled in Hebrew, has a numerical value. So if you have a word like... um, 
Chai, let's say. And then you have another word, which is spelled a little bit different, but the combination is different, but the sum total is the same as 18, then that's also related to the word Chai, because they both have the same number 18. And it's fascinating how much this can go. Now, we're not going to make these things up. We're going to look at three categories of examples. We're going to look at examples of this gematria in Jewish history, kind of Jewish stories in the Torah called Agada. That will be our next section. We'll look at this in Jewish law and Jewish custom and practice, how this impacts it. And then we'll look at some Kabbalah, some of the real mystical ideas, which really takes this idea of gematria, the hidden coding in the Torah, to the next level. But we'll touch upon some examples in the next, in the final section. So, just to whet our appetite here, how do we say father? In Hebrew, Av. Av is two Hebrew letters, Aleph and Bet. If you don't want to do the math, you can trust me. Aleph and Bet is one and two. That equals three. How do we spell mother in Hebrew? M, Ima. M is in the old Hebrew, Kabed. Kibbut Av, M. Av is father, which is equals three. The word for mother is M, which is 41. Aleph is one. Mem is 40. It's 41. 41 plus three equals 44. So Dad and mom equals 44 together. That's three for father, four, 41 for mother, together is 44. When you put a father and mother together, what do you have? What do, you, what do they produce? With God's help, they produce a child. How do you say child in Hebrew? Yeled. Yeled is a child. What is the numerical value of Yeled? Yod is 10, Lamed is 30, Dalet is 4. That is 44. 10 plus 30 plus 4 is 44. So a child is 44 and father and mother together is 44. That shows you there is some correlation between a child and parents. Parents equal child. Or a child equals that he has parents. They're both the number 44. Here's another example. The Hebrew word for pregnancy is hirayon. And that equals 271. Now, Nine months of pregnancy is about 271 days around. Try 12 times 30 is, 9 times 30 is 270, but it's not always exactly that. So there is a correlation between the word pregnancy in Hebrew, which is 271, and what pregnancy is actually about, or how long it takes for for a woman to be pregnant to produce a child. They're both the same number. So the same thing, this goes on and on. When you have two separate words, which both have the same numerical value, that can be an expression of their inherent value and connection, and that can teach us many things. So I hope that's clear. If it's not, I will repeat it. Let me know in the comments if that is necessary. Source number three. Everything that was transmitted from God to Moshe through the 49 gates of understanding was written in the Torah explicitly or by implication in words. In the numerical value of the letters or in the form of the letters or in the tips of the letters and their crownlets. So this is an excerpt from Nachmanides, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, who lived in the 13th century, originally from Girona in Spain, finished his life in Israel, 
and he is a one of the greatest lead, leaders and commentators on Torah and Talmud and Jewish law that uh, ever lived. And Nachmanides, in his introduction to his commentary on the Torah, he writes this, that everything was given to Moses at Sinai. He was there 40 days, 40 nights, and he wrote down word for word the five books of Moses. But also, together with that, there was a lot of commentary, a lot of oral tradition, but they're all hinted to in the Torah. Some are explicit in the Torah, but some are implied in the words, in the numerical value, things are hidden in the words, in the form of the letters, certain letters of the Torah are formed a little different than the rest, the tips of the letters, if you look closely to the font of the Torah, there are tips and there are crowns on certain letters. You can also see that in the mezuzah, the way it's written. So the Nachmanides is telling us that everything of Jewish law, everything is, there is hinted to in the Torah. It's in, encoded, embedded in the text. So there is what the naked eye sees, the actual letter, and what the simple meaning is. But then there is allusions. You know, they say there's the pardis. Pardis means an orchard. And the Torah is referred to as an orchard. In Hebrew, the word pardis uh, is an acronym for four different general ways of interpreting the Torah. The pay is for pshat, the simple meaning. Then there's resh, which is rem, is what's alluded to, hinted to in the Torah. Then there is homily, drash, and then there's the mystical Kabbalah parts of the Torah, the real secrets. So there are very many layers to understanding Torah. Of course, there's the pshat, the basic simple meaning. Then there's much more. That's the quote from Nachmanides. Source number four, here we have a quote from the Evan Ezra, another one of the early commentators on the Torah, and he says, Scripture does not speak in Gematria. With this type of interpretation, one can interpret any name as he wishes, both in a positive and a negative manner. So that Evan Ezra is a little more critical and says, this is not so simple. Yes, it's mentioned in the Talmud, but... You can't just go and start making your own calculations and this word has this uh, numerical value and that word has that numerical value. So let's say they're related. It doesn't work like that because that can lead you astray. A few hundred years ago, there was a false messiah. There were many, but the most recent probably was Shabtai Tzvi, an individual who claimed to be the messiah. Unfortunately, ended up converting to a different religion and obviously uh, was not the messiah. But many Jewish people who are at a very physical and spiritual low at the time, what got swept up in the excitement of the Shabtai Tzvi movement. And they even claimed, hey, his name in Hebrew is Shabtai Tzvi. And if you take the Hebrew letters and you add up the gematria, the numerical value, you will get 814. And the other Hebrew words are Moshiach HaMiti, the true Messiah. If you spell that in Hebrew, the numerical value is also 814. So that proves that he is the true Messiah, Right? Obviously, you can't just prove from some numerical values from the gematria that something is true because otherwise you'll find numerical values for all good words and bad words. That's not the way it works. What does, how does it work? Source number five. A gematria must be sourced to be significant. We don't make these things up. It needs to be sourced. If a link exists as recognized by a valid authority, the numerical value can add to this association. But Kimantra does not create a connection. Just because two things have a similar, two words, two concepts, have a similar or an exact calculation, numerical value, does not mean they're connected. If 
But if we have an established connection between two things, we know that there is an inherent connection. So as a support, as a dessert, to add flavor to that connection, we can show how this connection is expressed, is manifested also in the numerical value. It's just cool and amazing to see how it also expresses itself in the numbers. But not that the numbers themselves create the connection. No, the connection that they have, the link that they have, creates the numerical connection. <clears throat> so, source number six. And that's why, before we get to source number six, um, it is, would not be proper before dating a woman or a man or before moving into a new home and trying to see the numerical value of the names of the man and the woman, of the address and our name, if this matches... It doesn't work like that because numbers is not what forms the connection. The connection, the inherent connection, the essential connection, that is what counts. Now, once there's a connection and they're engaged to be married, you might want to say, hey, it's so cool, her name and his name, the numerical values match because that might be an expression of that established connection. But not to base it off the numerical gematria. So, let's give an example that's brought in the Talmud about getting drunk or, ha- or intoxicated. Source number six. The numerical value of the word yayin, wine, is 70. Yayin is made up of three Hebrew letters, yud, yud, nun, which is 10, 10, and, uh, and 50, which is 70. 10, 10, and, si- and 50 equals 70. Likewise, the word sod which in English is secret, has the same value. So secret is 70 in Hebrew, sod, and yayin, wine is 70. Wine and secret both have the same numerical value. Do they have an internal connection? Is there an established connection between wine and secrets? Well, typically, when wine goes in, secrets come out. The Talmud tells us that when one drinks a lot of wine, the secrets come out. As the Yiddish expression, what's on the lung is often sung. What's on your lung comes out on your tongue. We have um, uh, uh, the guard, our guard is down. We're less in control. And the truth comes out many times when somebody has a couple of drinks. So here we have an established connection. We have a tangible. We see that when one drinks wine, secrets come out. And now we can say, hey, isn't it amazing that the word yayin for wine and the word secret both have the same numerical value the way that they're spelled in Hebrew. They're both 70. And the Talmud goes on. What's the significance of the number 70? 70 has got to do with wisdom and a whole discussion over there. But we see here that two words have the same numerical value because they have an inherent connection. Let's give some more examples. Um, The word for love in Hebrew is ahava. The ahavta means you shall love. Ahava is love. The numerical value of the ahavta, no, no, sorry, not ahavta, for love, which is ahava, aleph, hey, vez, hey, Aleph is 1, Hay is 5, Base is 2, and Hay is 5, that's 10, 2 is 12, and 1 is 13. Ahava, love, the word for love in Hebrew is 13. What is love? Love is bringing two people together. 
And it's no longer me and you, it is us. It is, we're one. How do you say one in Hebrew? Echad. Echad is the name for one. Echad, echad is one. Echad is made up of three Hebrew letters. Al-Chadal, which is one, eight, four. One, eight, four equals 13. So love and one, we know there's an established connection between love and one. Love is not because I get, I gain pleasure from you and, but we're fusing and becoming one entity. So love and one are inherently related. And now in their Hebrew words, we see a connection. They're both the number 13. Love equals 13 in Hebrew and one equals 13 in Hebrew. When a boy turns bar mitzvah 13, it's time for him to start fulfilling, following the love of Hashem by following the commandments. And there are many parts to this. That's an example. The final source for the first section is going a bit off to a general idea of gematria. Usually when we say gematria, we refer to this numerical value system that each letter has a number and each word equals a number. But in general, in some places in the Talmud, it's a reference to more broad ways of interpreting the Torah. Gematria is just one, this number. But there are more to numbers. For example, if you count the letters, you count the numbers, what number word it is. So if you count from the first word of the Torah, first word of the Torah in Genesis is Bereshus, in the beginning. And you count 25 letters. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then the earth was desolate, and there was water, and finally it says, and God said there shall be light. The word for light is or is the 25th letter from the beginning of the Torah. Sorry, 25th word from the beginning of the Torah. Count. I counted it. Count as well. 25th word, the first time the Torah uses the word light is on the 25th word. Or, now, that is an allusion or a hint for the story of Hanukkah, which took place on the 25th day of the month of Kislev. That is when the Maccabees defeated the Greeks and they lit the menorah with a small measure of oil, a small um, jug of oil, and a miracle happened with the light, and it lasted for eight days. When did the miracle start? On the 25th. And the 25th word of the Torah is light. So that's just another example of coding in the Torah. We know that on the 25th day, light, a miracle happened with light. And now we can look back to the Torah and find a code in the Torah for that. But I want to show you from the Talmud, source number 7, another method that the Torah uses. <coughs> the king of Sheshach. This takes us to the book of Jeremiah, the prophet during the end of the first temple. About uh, under 3,000 years ago. And... 2,600 years ago probably is more accurate, 2,500 years ago. And he is referring to the, well, he says this expression, the king of Sheshach. And we don't know who Sheshach is. Who is the king of Sheshach? What kind of country is Sheshach? We don't have any uh, reference to Sheshach before or after anywhere. Who's Sheshach? So says Rashi from, <clears throat> that this is Bavel. Bavel are the Babylonians. Babylonians were the rising empire of the time, Nebuchadnezzar. They're the ones that destroyed the, the first temple and exiled the Jews to Bavel, modern-day Iraq. So why does he say Sheshach? Or how does Sheshach mean Bavel? 
So here is something called Atbash. And I'll explain in a moment. I just want to give another example. Uh, the story of, if you heard the expression, the handwriting on the wall, they see the, the handwriting on the wall. We discussed this when we talked about the prophet Daniel. Daniel was later a officer or a uh, advisor in the court of Nebuchadnezzar in Babel, which was later uh, succeeded by his son, Evel Merudach, and his son, Belshazzar. And at a party, they saw a heavenly hand come and write on the wall a code, and they couldn't decipher what this code was. And even the Jewish people that were there were not able to read the code. And then Daniel, Daniel is summoned, and he deciphers the code. And the question that Talmud asks is, why couldn't the Jewish people read it themselves? Maybe it was Hebrew letters and nobody else understood it. But why not the Jews? So there are various answers in the Talmud. And one answer given by Rav is, because, Rav says, because it was written for them in the obscure code of Gematria. What does this mean? Not the Gematria really that we're talking about, but this is the kind of Gematria known as Atbash. What's Atbash? The exchanging of a letter with its counterpart in the opposite place in the alphabet. Aleph, the first letter, for Tav, the last letter. So, there's an order to the letters. It starts with Aleph, Bet, Gimel, and it ends with Shin, Resh, Tav. This method is that you can exchange the first letter and the last letter, the second letter with the second to last letter, the third letter with the third to last letter. So imagine, it says, um, Apple, but A can really be a code for Z and P for the corresponding letter moving your way back until the two middle letters are exchange interchangeable. So it said, let's get back to our first example. Jeremiah said Sheshach, but Sheshach, Shin is the second to last letter and Bet is the second letter of the alphabet and they're interchangeable. So really, Bavel but if you change the letters around in such an order, it spells Sheshach. Bavel is Bet, Bet, Lamed. And instead, we're doing Shin, Shin. Shin and Shin are interchangeable with Bet, because Bet is the second letter, Shin is the second to the last letter. And Lamed and Kaf are right near each other, and they're the, the meeting point, and they're interchangeable. So the Torah can be saying Sheshach, but it's a hint to something secretive in the way you change the letters around. It means Bavel. And there are more examples of that in the book of Jeremiah, of Yirmiyahu. And the same thing, the handwriting of the wall. It was Hebrew letters. But even the Jews cannot decipher it because it was not readable, according to Rav, at least. It was not readable the way it was written. You had to know that this is using the coding of Atbash, where it says, um, you know, Yud, Tet, Taf. But really, it means Minei, which means God had counted the days of King Belshazzar and he's going to split the kingdom. And that's what happened that night. The split kingdom was taken away from the Babylonians and it was divided between the Persians and the Medians. But he was able to figure out what truly, what's behind the code. So here we have an example where God himself, the angel or God or somebody was from heaven, was writing this hand, writing these words, giving a message to the Babylonians. And how was it presented in a code? in a code using Atbash. So there, it wasn't about the numerical value, exactly, but another kind of code, which sometimes is referred to as Gematria as well. And there are many other methods to coding, but we'll suffice with that for now. 
that's our first uh, section here, and it just gives us a little bit of an introduction to this topic of gematria. Every letter has a number. Every word, which is a combination of letters, has a total number, which can be related to another word, which has a different sort of combination, but they get to the same total, so these two ideas can be related. So let's start with some more concrete examples. We'll start with section number two, which is... Uh, Agada, go th- going through the stories of the Torah and seeing where our tradition in the Talmud and Midrash give us some gematria. Source number eight. Take it from the top, the first Jewish man, Abraham. God blessed Abraham with everything. And we'll see how the gematria is not just a dessert, but it also teaches us something about life. So God blessed Avraham with everything. Abraham and Sarah, he blessed them with everything. What's everything? So Nachmanides, we talked about him before, he says like this, riches, what is everything? God blessed him with riches, he was wealthy, he had possessions, he had cattle and servants and maids and honor, longevity and children. He was already a hundred and... Um, 137, I think, years old at the time when this verse is talking about, and with, which are all the treasures of man. That's when Nachmanides interprets the verse, God blessed him with everything. Everything. Rashi doesn't take that approach. Rashi says the word bakol, which means everything in Hebrew, with everything, is numerically equal to ben. What does ben mean? A son. Like you might say, uh, a boy, you'll say, Yeshua ben Ephraim. Yeshua, the son of Ephraim. Ben is bet known is 2 and 50, is 52. And Bakol is 2, 20, and 30, which is also 52. A different way of getting there, but they both equal 52. So when the verse says that God blessed Avram with everything, it doesn't mean the riches. It means a son. God blessed him with a son, which a son is everything. Why does Rashi do that? And what is he teaching us? He says, according to Nachmanides, what does it mean, God blessed him with everything? There's, there's, there's no end to, any, to everything. You know? How much is enough? More. Because he blessed him with riches, he could have made him more rich, and he could have made him live longer, and uh, more possessions. There's no, that's not really everything. Is it really everything? There's, always, there's no end. What, do, what it does mean, Rashi says, is a son, because that's everything. Having a child, that is the greatest gift and that could be infinite, to have another generation, another generation. So here, the gematria, it just says God bless him with everything. Uh, because everything equals 52, and we know that son is 52. This son that he was granted, the son Isaac, Yitzchak, that was everything. A son, especially a son going in his ways. That was everything. That's what's meaningful. All the other things, that's not really everything. Everything is the son, is your children. So it teaches us something. Next example, source number nine. Jacob, Yaakov, stole the blessings from his brother Esau. He runs away. Over 30 years, they're separated. Finally, he's making his way back to Israel and he hears that his brother Esau still hates him and is on his way with 400 men to kill him. So what does he do? He sends messengers to his brother, to Esau. What does he tell his messengers? To tell his brother, source number nine, so shall you say to my master, to Esau, I have sojourned with Lavan, with his father-in-law, an uncle, Lavan, Laban, sojourned. The Hebrew word is garti. 
Garti literally simply means I lived with, I was with, I spent time. But Rashi doesn't say that. He gives an extra interpretation. Garti has the numerical value of 613. That is to say, I kept the 613 commandments and I did not learn from his evil deeds. So the simple meaning is, Im Lavan Garti, I lived with Lavan. But Rashi says Garti doesn't just mean lived. Garti, let's look at the numbers, not just the meaning, but what does it represent numerically? It represents 613. Now we know there are 613 commandments. And Jacob, even before the Torah was given, he fulfilled those commandments in some way or another. So really what he was telling um, Esau, his brother, is not just that he lived with Lavan, but that he did 613 commandments even while living with Lavan. But why is that important to tell your brother after 35 years? Especially an enemy trying out to kill you. You would think that maybe you should try to minimize your Jewishness and anything that's different about you. But no. Jacob confronted with an adversary, what does he say? He doesn't buckle down. He's not ashamed of his Jewishness and his Jewish practice. What does he say? He says, I am a proud Jew. I'm an observer of the 630 commandments that God that God desired. Source number 10. We should not be ashamed of our Torah observance. We should highlight it. Exuding pride in our godly mission not only does not undermine our esteem in the eyes of the world, it enhances it. We've got to be proud of our mission, God-given mission of following the Torah. And that is what is embedded and coded in the Torah. Simply, yeah, Jacob was just telling his brother that I lived with Lavan. But deeper, he was telling his adversary, he was telling his enemy, I fulfill the 630 commandments. And that's the first thing he tells him. This is who I am. Source number 11. Later, Yaakov settles in the land of Israel and... There's a hunger many years later and he sends his sons to Egypt where Joseph um, had amassed lots of food. He was the second in command. What does Jacob tell his sons? Source 11, go down to Egypt and buy us some grain. He did not say lechu. Lechu would be the ordinary word to use. Go, go to Egypt. He says go down, descend to Egypt. The Hebrew word is redu. Why did he use that expression? He alluded to the 210 years that they were enslaved in Egypt according to the numerical value of Redu. The word Redu, which means to descend, is Reish Dalitvav, 204 and 6, equals 210. This is the first time the Jewish people, the Jewish sons of Jacob, the tribes, are descending to Egypt. And that led eventually to their entire family settling in Egypt because they met Joseph there and Joseph said, come on, it's hunger, I'll support you here. And they settled there and they eventually were enslaved a total of 210 years. They were descended in Egypt until Moses and God uh, you know, redeemed them, liberated them and they came back to Israel some time later. So Jacob alluded to his sons or at least in the Torah's um, narrative, the wording is hinting that the Jewish people, as a result of this initial descent, will be there for 210 years. Nothing happens by chance. Nothing is coincidence. This is part of the plan. And Jacob already mentioned it or alluded to it in his wording 
210, you will go down to Egypt. Not go to Egypt, descend. 210 in Egypt. And the same thing with everything that happens in life. It's all, I don't want to say pre-planned, but there's a heavenly plan. Source number 12. They finally leave Egypt and they're in the desert and God says to build the Mishkan, the tabernacle. And once it's erected, the representatives, the princes of each of the tribes ring a offering to inaugurate the temple. And a very elaborate gift each tribe representative brings. One of them, and each of the different parts of their sacrifice, their gifts, has meaning and significance. And here's one example. They brought a silver bowl. Source number 12. He brought his offering of one silver bowl. A bowl made of silver. In Hebrew, karat kesef. Karat is a bowl, kesef is silver. Says the Midrash, the numerical value of the two words amounts to 930. Karat is 770, that's one, kuf ayin reish taf is 170, and 200, and 400, that's 400, 500, 600, 670, and kesef is kaf samach fei, kaf is 20, samach is 60, pei is 80, that is 160, 160 plus 770 is 930. So what is this silver bowl, which in Hebrew is called karat kesef, which equals 930, says the Midrash, that alludes corresponding to the years of Adam, the first man. The first man, Adam, lived, recorded in the Torah, for 930 years. And if you want to know why people lived so long back then, go back to our pre- uh, previous lesson, um, probably a couple of months ago, where we discussed the longevity of people's lives back in the day. So the silver bowl that he brought in Hebrew equals 930. Silver bowl equals 930. Silver bowl means silver bowl. Karat kesa means silver bowl. But it also means 930. And Adam, the first man, lived 930 years. So there's some sort of correlation. And each of their gifts represented something else of creation. Now we all come from Adam and Eve and the longevity, how long he lived, and so on. So not just us, we use gematria. The princes of the Jewish people, the leaders of each tribe, they incorporated gematria into their life. And they present the certain gifts to God based on their numerical value of their names in Hebrew. Fascinating. Source number 13. Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, is speaking to the Jewish people a few weeks before his passing. And one of the things he says in the second portion of the book, Va'et Hanan, he says, I entreated, source 13, I entreated God at that time, saying, let me cross over and see the good land that is on the other side of the Jordan. Moses really desired and yearned to cross over the Jordan River. He's on the east bank and he wants to go over to the west bank, right? Why is it called the west bank in in Israel? They try to call it the west bank of Jordan River, but Moses wants to cross over into Israel proper. But God did not allow it in the end. But he says, I entreated God. The word for entreated is va'etchanan. And I entreated. I prayed to God. Says the Midrash, he prayed 550 prayers on this. Like the gematria of va'etchanan. The word va'etchanan, vav, alef, taf, chet, nun, nun, is six, one, plus one, plus 400, plus eight, plus 50, plus 50, equals 
515. The numerical value of the word, and I entreated, tells us how many times he entreated. He prayed to God nonstop. He prayed to God 550 times to be allowed to enter into Israel. What does that teach us about prayer? That we don't stop praying. If God didn't answer our prayers, we didn't get what we wanted, pray again. And pray again. 515 times Moses prayed. And even though he was not granted his request, he kept on praying. That teaches us something about prayer. So the gematria, you could just read the verse, and, and Moses said, I entreated God. But by looking at the gematria, wait a second, this is 515. The Midrash tells us he kept on praying 515 times. That's a code teaching you that if Moses prayed 550 times, we could do the same. We should keep praying. Once, again, and again. And sometimes it will be the tenth time and the hundredth time that God will finally acquiesce to our prayers, our demands. And finally, source number 14, another example, is with this shall Aaron enter the holy, with a young bull and a ram. This is talking about a service on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year. This is the third book, the book of Ayikra, Leviticus. We read this on Yom Kippur, and it says, with this, this is the service that Aaron the high priest will do when he enters into the Holy of Holies, where the ark was, and perform the service, there's a young bull and a ram, different sacrifices. With this, the word in Hebrew is bezos. The gematria of bezos, which means in this, with this, is 410. Bezos, bez, zayin, aleph, tough. That's 2 plus 7 plus 1 plus 400. 407 and 1 is 8. 9, 10 is bez. 410. An allusion to the number of years that the holy first temp- the first holy temple would stand. Years later, this is told to Moses in the desert. But later, four five hundred years later, King Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem, and it stands for four hundred and ten years. So when the verse says, "With this, Aaron will enter into the uh, high, high holy of holies on Yom Kippur," with this means for four hundred and ten years they will enter into the holy of holies during the first temple era. The second temple era wasn't the same; they didn't have the ark anymore; it was hidden, and they weren't the 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 they weren't. Um, Considered like Aaron, they weren't of such high spiritual status like Aaron. Aaron will enter into the temple and his descendants like him for 410 years during the first temple era. Amazing. Fascinating. And these are not things that I'm making up. This is the Midrash. This is going back 15, 1600 years. These things are recorded. And throughout our history, there were some... Um, Jewish scholars that highlighted this method of gematria, of, of finding the numerical values and hints in the Torah. And again, it's like a dessert. We don't just study like this. This is not the main course, but once we have ideas and we know history, this can enhance and add flavor to the, to the facts. One, one famous rabbi is the Baal HaTurim, Rabbi Yaakov ben Asher, lived about probably 700 years ago, uh, and he has a commentary on the Torah called the Balaturim, and he points out probably over 600 such examples of gematria, many other co- kinds of codes in the Torah. Another one is the Megala Amukois. I think his name was uh, Nasan uh, Shapiro. I was actually at his grave, buried in Krakow in Poland, lived a few hundred years ago, probably about 400 years ago or so. Um, the Chida, Chaim Yosef David Azulai, the, ra- the rabbi of Baghdad, I believe, 
more, more recently was very into it, and many others. But again, nobody could just make these things up by themselves. They have to be qualified and have established connections, and then they can draw attention to these <coughs> correlations through numbers. <coughs> Another example is the name Ruth. Ruth was the great-grandmother of King David. She was a convert. We studied about her a while ago. Ruth, in Hebrew, is Resh Vav Taf. Resh is 200, Vav is 6, Taf is 400, that's 606. What's the significance of Ruth? Because when somebody is not born Jewish, they have seven mitzvot. We talked about the seven universal laws that the Torah gives for all of mankind. So seven. Jewish people have 613. That is an additional 606. 606 plus 7 equals 613. So when she converted, she took the name Ruth, Ruth, which is 606. She took upon herself an additional 606, totaling 613, besides the 7 that she had previously. So again, we see that in the Jewish, in Hebrew, the numerical value can express an idea. Let's move on, because the clock is ticking, to our next section. Excuse me. So generally, <clears throat> Jewish law does not start from a numerical value, but once we have an established Jewish law, we can find a connection in the numbers. But one example, which the Talmud points out, the Gematra clearly in regards to Jewish law, is the loss of the Nazarite, a Nazir. Getting back to our rabbi <laughs> we showed that had really long hair. This is a picture of Rabbi Yosef Rosen, and he was the rabbi of Dvinsk, I believe it's in Belarus, and he's known as the Ragachover, the Ragachov uh, genius. Some, I guess he was born in the city of Ragachov, which I think maybe is in Latvia, if I'm not mistaken. And he had really long hair. And the question is, why? He passed away in the 1930s. He was a genius, really. His books are amazing. And... Perhaps some say he was like a Nazarite. The Nazarite is a rule the Torah talks about where a man or woman can take upon themselves an a additional level of uh, holiness or strictness and they have to stay away from any wine or grape products as well as impurity and not to cut their hair. Okay, It's not very common today, but perhaps that was the reason why he did not cut his hair. And the standard or the minimum time if someone took upon himself to be a Nazir, a Nazarite, like Samson was a Nazarite, the minimum is a certain amount of days. Source 15, where one does not state how long he wishes to be a Nazarite, the term lasts for 30 days. From where do we derive this principle? The verse states, he shall be sacred, and the numerical value of Yihia is 30. Yihia in Hebrew means he shall be. He shall be, shall be sacred, it says. Kodesh Talking about the Nazarite. So the word Yiyah is spelled Yud, then Hey, then Yud, then Hey, which equals 30. 10 plus 5, 10 plus 5 is 30. So it tells us that the minimum uh, length of days for the Nazarite to be holy is 30. So if he said 29, like we see in source 16, if he specified a time span that was less than 30 days, he must observe the Nazarite vow for 30 days. This concept was conveyed by the oral tradition. So... 30 days. If he said 31, it's 31. But it cannot be less than 30. And if he didn't say an amount of days, it has to be 30 days that he has to follow through and follow the laws of the Nazarite of being pure and not cutting his hair or her hair and not coming in contact with the dead. 
Why 30 days? The Talmud says, because there's a word in the Torah, which means it shall be, yihiyah, which has a numerical value of 30. But Maimonides tells us that it was conveyed by the oral tradition, meaning that it's not so really clear in the Torah, because obviously there was a tradition that it's 30 days. But once we had this tradition established, we found a hint for it in the Torah, an allusion, a gematria, a, the word yihiyah, that means that he shall be, shall be in his status of sacredness, equals 30. Source number 17, another example in Jewish law. When you see the fringes, you will remember all the commandments of the Lord to perform them, and you shall not wander, wander after your hearts and after your eyes. This is talking about the tzitzis. We have the strings on the corners of a four-cornered garment, a talis. The idea is that when you see the fringes, the strings, it will remind us of God. God rules all four corners, all four directions. We're surrounded with mitzvahs. It reminds us of the 630 commandments. And we once did a whole discussion about the tzitzis, the significance of it. Says the Midrash, we also have a gematria here. Because the numerical value of the word tzitzis is 600, add to this the eight threads and five knots, and we have 613. The word tzitzis is spelled in Hebrew, tzaddik yud, tzaddik yud, tough. Tzaddik is 90, yud is 10, that's 100. Another 90 and 10 is another 100, and tough tzitzis at the end is the tough, which is 400, is 600. Plus, each corner has eight strings and five knots. Eight, that's 613. So that enhances how the tzitzis reminds us of the 630 commandments based on the name in Hebrew for these strings. Amazing. Let's move on to another example. Source number 18. From where do we know that a mikvah requires 40 se'ah? Se'ah is a measurement in Jewish law. And in order for a mikvah, a ritual bath for immersion for a woman, for a man, to become purified from the impurity, the mikvah has to have a certain amount of rainwater. Now with the mikvahs, there are connected to another pool which has the rainwater collected. But how much water has to be in there? A cup, a pitcher, a barrel, how, what size? So it's 40 sa'ah. A sa'ah is, uh, 40 sa'ah is about, uh, I think a sa'ah is about 8 liters or so. So 40 sa'ah would be about 330 liters or uh, somewhere between around 85 or 90 gallons. So how do we know this measurement of 40? So it says in the Midrash, it says in the verse, as it is written in Isaiah, since this nation has rejected the waters of Shiloh, that flow gently, the waters of Shiloh is a certain spring in Jerusalem, that flow gently, and the word gently in Hebrew is La'at. The gematria of La'at is 40, Lamed Aleph Tet is 31 and 9, which equals 40. So in reference to the waters of the Shiloh, which was used as a mikvah, it says the word La'at, which equals 40, and that is a hint that the mikvah, in order to be kosher, in the Torah we see has to be the number 40, which is 40 sa. So again, it's not established from there, because I could have found another word which has another numerical value or a different measurement. However, once we have this tradition that it needs to be 40 sa, we can find an allusion to it embedded and coded in the Torah. Source number 19, when it comes to shechita, to slaughter, how long does the knife, the chalif, the blade that is used to uh, slaughter a kosher animal, how long does the knife have to be? So generally it has to be double the size of the head of the animal. So the knife should be able to go 
over the head, over the throat, and again, uh, either pass once over and pull back. So it has to be twice as long. So, what is the exact measurement? So it says in Koto Jewish Law that it should be, it brings this verse. It says, source 19, in the book of Samuel, Shemuel, it's talking about King Saul, and it says, you shall slaughter with this. Bazeh. Bazeh is the word in Hebrew, with this. A knife 14 fingers long, he showed them, as the gematria of the word bazeh. He said to them, in this order you will slaughter and eat. With this you shall slaughter. With this kind of blade, of knife, you shall slaughter. And the word bazeh is spelled bay, zayin, hey, which equals 2, 7, and 5, which equals 14. What's 14? 14 fingers. Okay, so this is the width of a finger. And count 14. It's about 11 inches, I would say. That's how long the blade should be. So again, we find a hint in Scripture to a practice of Jewish law. And here's an interesting one related to high holidays coming up soon. Source number 20. There are people who make a point of not eating walnuts and hazelnuts during Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. I'm sorry, Yom Kippur is a fast day, but even Rosh Hashanah, because they generate phlegm and mus- uh, mucus and thus disturb one while he is praying. Because we pray extra long on Rosh Hashanah, and having nuts in their mouth can uh, produce and generate phlegm and mucus, and that would not be proper. It would start be spitting and while we're praying. So we should stay away from hazelnuts and walnuts. Or there are people who make a point of staying away. That's what it's brought in the code of Jewish law. And that's a simple reason, and that's something that we do today. So if you have uh, any kind of dish, we, we, a salad, we take out, the, we don't use nuts. This is brought in code of Jewish law. However, comes the Mariel, one of the fathers of Ashkenazic customs, and adds some spice and flavor using gematria. He says the numerical equivalent of the Hebrew word for nut, egoz, is 17. Egoz is the word for nuts. And it equals 17. Aleph, Gimel, Vav, Zayin is 1 plus 3 plus 6 plus 7. 13 plus 3 is 16 plus 1 is 17. 17 is also the numerical equivalent of the Hebrew word for sin. Sin is chet. Chet equals 17. We stay far away from anything reminiscent of sin on Rosh Hashanah, nuts included. So because nuts and sin, in the words in Hebrew, egos and chet, each, both equal 17, getting it to a, to a different combination of letters. So we don't want to have anything to do with sin. Not just sin itself, but any food which has the same numerical value as sin. Now, I don't know if that's the full reason. The reason is because phlegm and mucus are produced from eating nuts. But this is an add-on, adds flavor, that nuts makes sense why it's not something we should be eating on Rosh Hashanah. I didn't make this up. This is the Maril who lived 500 years ago probably, uh, or even more, and he tells us this combination, this, this uh, gematria. So it's amazing... Uh, how things are related. And obviously there is an inherent connection between them and it's not spiritually uh, conducive or good for us to have uh, eating nuts on Rosh Hashanah. Let's move on to our final section. Um, bear with me for another couple of minutes. Important section. Uh, just another example is 
talking about Jewish law, is a bris, a bris, a brit, circumcision. So the word for circumcision in Hebrew is bris. Bris is beis reish yotaf, 210 and 400. That's 612. Because a baby boy, the first mitzvah they do is they have a bris. They have a circumcision. And then there are 612 more to go. So bris is not 613 because the bris is number one. And then once you have the bris, you have 612 more commandments to fulfill the rest of your life. So that's just beautiful. Our final section is more Kabbalistic. It's probably the most amazing, the most cool, and the most important, and the most comprehensive, but we'll touch upon some ideas. Source number 21. Let's begin with um, a quote from Jewish law. And that uh, relates to the microscope. You know, we showed a picture of a microscope. You don't see something with your naked eye. You don't see everything. You don't see the bugs floating in the water. You don't see things under, under the under with our eyes. Our eyes are not trained. They don't have the ability to see everything. You look under a microscope, you start seeing things. Wow, there's shape to this. There's cells in there. Until you get to the atom, it, it's just amazing to look under a microscope. And you can see things that you didn't think, you didn't see it. And the same thing with the Torah. There is the basic Torah. There's the words. There's the meaning. Then, all of a sudden, especially in the Kabbalah, it's like looking into a microscope, showing you how this is related to that, and this means that, and it's so amazing how there's so much depth to the Hebrew letters and Hebrew words and the Torah's words. Source 21. The Shema prayer, there's a mitzvah to say the Shema every morning, every evening. It may be recited in any language. So if you don't read Hebrew and you want to say it in English or in Russian or any language, you could say it in Polish, you could even say it in German, may be recited in any language, but one should vigilantly avoid unfaithful translations in that language and should pronounce its letters precisely, as he would in the Holy Tongue, in Hebrew, which is called Lashon Kodesh, the Holy Tongue. This leniency is granted provided he understands the language. The same applies to the Amidah, and benching when it comes to saying the Shemona Esrei, the Amida prayer, and grace after meals. Also, it can be said in any language, provided that we understand the language. So you can say it in English. But if someone knows how to read English or repeats words after you in English but does not understand what they're saying, then it is meaningless. So if there's a transliteration for uh, blessed are you, Lord our God, but the person saying it does not understand, then they shouldn't say it. It's meaningless. Only if they understand, then the other language works. However, Hebrew is not like that. Hebrew is a language where the verbalizing, the Hebrew letters, the Hebrew words, has significance even if the person does not understand what you're saying. We say a blessing. We say a prayer. We say the Shema. And that's why we pray for, parts in, in synagogue, yeah, it's good to read and understand the English, but certain parts, or if someone chooses to say it in Hebrew, that has validity. It has weight. It has meaning. Because the Hebrew letters are deep. They are inherently valuable. And words are valuable, even just pronouncing it, even not understanding it. Other languages are just meant for us to communicate. 
We, we want to know what a table is, what a chair is, so this is a table, this is a chair. But there's no real connection between table and table and chair and chair. You can switch it around. The letters T-A-B-L-E do not have a connection to the table. It's just man-made and we decided that a table is called a table. We could call it something else. Not so in Hebrew. Hebrew is God-made. Hebrew, the names of every object, person, idea are inherently related and telling about that object and creation that has and carries that name. It is a God-given language. It is a language of God. God spoke in this language, communicated to the prophets. The Torah is written in Hebrew. This is a language, letters, which have meanings, even if we don't understand it and we're not really communicating with it, there's still value to the letters and there's still value to the words being uttered. There is an avalanche being created by pronouncing those words. And therefore, even if you don't understand it, it is valuable. Source 22. All created things in the world, their names in the holy tongue are the very letters of speech which descend degree by degree from the ten utterances recorded in the Torah. There are ten general utterances in the six days of creation. God said there shall be light, there shall be water, there shall be, or shall be earth, there shall be animals, there shall be fish and birds and man. But that were, those were general. But all created things, their names in the Hebrew tongue. So, for example, a dog is called Kelev in Hebrew. And Kelev is spelled Kaf Lamed Beis. Those letters are the letters of speech which God spoke. How did God create the world? Through speech. Speech is like a flow of energy. And those specific letters are the coding for the makeup of a dog. And the name Kelev, Kaf Lamed Beis, actually describes the dog. Kalev means full of heart because a dog is man's best friend, very loving and loyal and so on. So the name in Hebrew for everything, for an animal, is very telling and inherently related to that specific being. It is the coding, the godly energy which brings it into being. Source number 23. Here's another example. The gematria of Hasatan, the Satan, the evil angel, the, the prosecuting angel. The, the word Hasatan, the Satan, is spelled Hey Sin Tet Nun, which is 5 plus 300 plus 9 plus 50 equals 364. What does this tell us? How many days of, do you have in the year? 365. The Satan is 364. What does that tell us? The Satan's job only works for 364 days of the year. For 364 days, the Satan has license to prosecute. On the remaining day, Yom Kippur, he has no license to prosecute since that day is exalted above all others. Yom Kippur is such a holy day, even the Satan is put to sleep. The Satan equals 364. His name tells us about his mission. That he's only granted permission to prosecute and satanize, if that's a word, for 364 days, which is the numerical value of his name. On the 365th day, on Yom Kippur, he is out of business. He's sleeping. He cannot have any control. He cannot prosecute. This is just us and God. So the letters of Hebrew are God's tools to create. And the different words, the different letters and combinations which make up the names of different things are the specific energy that God creates that specific being.
what it looks like, how it behaves, how it operates. Let's move on to a basic Kabbalistic concept. God has many names. Seven names. Let's talk about two of them. Every time we say a blessing, we say, Baruch Adonai, Lamdeni Chukecha, and that Adnai, I don't like to pronounce it properly, fully, because that is not permitted, but I'll say Adnai. The way it's written is different than it's pronounced. It's spelled Yud, then Hey, then Vav, and Hey, and that's called the name of Havaya. It's referred to as Havaya. That equals 26. That's one name of God. We have that in every blessing. But right after that, we have Elokeinu, or Heinu. I won't say it properly because it wouldn't be um, permitted. And that means our Elohim. Elohim is the, another name of God. So we have Avaya, we have Elohim. God, our Lord. Sounds redundant. But those are two names of God. It says the verse, source 24, as the sun and its shield are Havaya and Elohim. These two names of God, Havaya and Elohim, are like the sun and its shield to protect the creatures so that they should be able to bear its heat. Just like the sun is put in a cover, in a shield. It was never up there. It even got close. But apparently God created a shield for the sun. I'm not sure if the scientists know this. And uh, there's a protection because the sun is so powerful. And even if you look at the sun, it's powerful. It's overwhelming. It's blinding. So the, sh- the sun has this cover that it shouldn't be too overwhelming for us or too hot for us. So just like you have the sun, which is the source of light, and you have this cover, so too are Havaya and Elohim. The name Elohim conceals the name Havaya. Havaya represents the creation of God, the light of God, the force of energy. But that would be too overbearing, overwhelming, and that would blind us, that would make us nullify, that wouldn't give us the feeling that we are here, we're alive, and we uh, we can we have a brain, and we can do things, and think about God or not think about God, and freedom of choice, and everything that comes along with nature, the way we live life today, and we see life, uh, that would that wouldn't be possible. We just had the sun, we just had Havaya, this great light of God. So we need Elohim. That's the second name of God, which restrains and conceals most of God's light. It's like the cover to the sun. And allows us to be here and exist. Source number 25. The life force conceals itself in the body of the created being. And it appears as though the created being has an independent existence. This concealment is the very restraining power of God. To condense the spiritual life force so that the body of the created being shall not become nullified. If we would have God's energy so present, we would just be so overwhelmed and engulfed in godliness that this world wouldn't be here and everything that the world the way it is today wouldn't work. So God makes something called nature, that God is concealed. It's like the light is so great and you cover it, cover it, and just a little bit of light comes out so you don't even realize that there's a source of light and there's such a great light and it just looks like we're just here. But this is the mask, what's called Elohim. So the light is called the first name, Havaya. And Elohim represents the mask, which is nature. But really, nature is a force of God, which is a shield to the life and flow of energy. But these two ideas are Havaya and Elohim. Now, 
Even nature is God, right? It's also a part of God. It's just a very condensed um, way of the light being presented. So nature is not God. No. How to say it? Uh, God is nature. Meaning whatever nature we have, that's made by God. But not nature is God. God is not, uh, the nature itself, that's not the God, like some would like to say. God is God. God is energy. And God is nature too. It's just a form of God in the name of Elohim, the way it's concealed. That's a very Kabbalistic idea. It's hard to explain very short. But I just want to bring out the Gimatria, source number 26. The numerical value of Elohim, this name of God which represents nature and God, and God being sort of concealed in a way that we, we have to look for Him and don't really see Him, Elohim equals 86. The way it's spelled him with a hey. Aleph is 1 plus 30 plus 5 plus 10 plus 40 equals 86. What's the word for nature? Hateva. Which also equals Hateva, which means the nature. Nature is 86 in Hebrew. And Elohim, which is the name of God responsible for nature, is 86. Because even nature is God. God makes nature. And everything that happens in nature is being run by God incognito. And here we'll give an example from Atbash. Remember the Atbash? You take the first letter of the alphabet and the last letter and they're connected. Here's something. We'll take you to the next level. In Atbash, the name Elohim equals 560. So if you just spell Elohim, Aleph, Lamed, Hey, then Yud, then Mem, it equals 86. But if you take the Aleph of Elohim and you change it with the Taf, which is the last letter, and take the Lamed and you change it with the Chaf, and you take the Hey and you change it with the Tzadik, and you take the Yud and you change it with the Mem, and you take the Mem and you change it with the Yud, then... It's different letters, because tough is much more than alf. Tough is 400. That equals 560. 560 is also the value of the word echad, when transformed by atbash. Echad, we said, is 13. But if echad is transformed with atbash, instead of alef, chet, dalet, it's tough, um, samach, and kuf, then you get 560. So echad, which is 1, and elokim, which means concealment, nature, if you transform those words in Hebrew through atbash, the first letter and the last letter and the middle letters, you connect them, they both equal 560. What does that teach us? That God is one even in the concealment. There's no other, there's nothing else but God. God is everywhere. There's nothing else. There's one God and one God everywhere. Even in nature. This teaches us that God's ultimate unity is manifest throughout creation by the power of His name Elohim. So that's just a little taste of what Kabbalah is about, teaching us that there is nothing outside of God. Ain't od milvado. And I don't, I don't want to, I know we're over time, but it's, it's just amazing to just add another couple of things here. Another deeper aspect of Gematria. There's the basic simple of Gematria. You take each letter and it has a numerical value. But then there, here's what's called Miloi. So, Let's say you have the word Av, right? Av means father. So Aleph, Bet, Av, Av, Av is spelled Aleph, Bet, Aleph is one, Bet is two, so Av means three. But then you can have the Milui. Aleph, Bet, 
How do you spell the name of the letter? The name of the letter is Alif, which is spelled Alif Lamed Bet. So you have to calculate the name of the letter. Alif Lamed uh, Pei, I'm sorry, is 130 and 80. That's 111. And then Bet is Beid Yud Taf. How do you spell out the name Bet? It's like you have ABC. So you have A, but how would you spell the word B? Let's say B-E or B-E-E, right? So you have the letter B, but then you have how you spell it, B-E-E. How, would you pronou- how do you spell out the pronunciation of the letter? Right? So there are more letters here. It's not just Av, Aleph, Bet. Yet it's Aleph, Lamed, Pei, which is for Aleph. The same thing is with God's name. The name we said about God's flow of energy, which creates everything from nothing to something, is Adnai, which is spelled Yud, and then Hey, then Vav, and Hey. That equals 26. But if you spell out each of the letters, Yud, Yud, Vav, Dalid, Hey, Hey, Yud, that's how you spell Hey, Vav, Vav, Yud, Vav, and then Hey, Hey, Yud, it equals 72. So the letters themselves equal 26. But if you spell out the name of each letter, Yud, which is, how do you spell Yud? There's a D there too. Yud, Vav, Dalid. So that equals 72. What is 72? The word kindness in Hebrew is chesed. Chet samach dalet is 8 plus 60 plus 4 is 70. God force, God's force, name of creation, the way it's spelled that way is 72, which is the same numerical value as chesed, which is kindness. God's kindness of bringing us into creation. And so on and so forth. This goes deeper and deeper and deeper. I want to conclude with our uh, final source. And that's why when we say a blessing, we say, Hashem Elokeinu. This amazing flow of energy is our Elokim. Even the concealment, even the nature is truly God. The final source is also very telling about how we look at each other, how we look at a Jew. Even somebody who is, his positivity is not always apparent. This takes us to the night of the Seder. Passover night, we talk about the four sons. And one of them is the wicked man, the wicked boy. He's a Russia. Russia. And the Haggadah says, you shall blunt his teeth. You should smash his teeth. A very tough uh, job to do. So here is a, uh, here is a gematria. Source 27. The gematria of Russia is 570. The word Russia is ration. I in 200, 370. 570. The gematria of a tzaddik, a righteous man, a good one, holy, is 204. Tzaddik, dalad, yud, kuf. Tzaddik is 90. Dalad is 4. Yud is 10. It's 94. That's uh, 104. Plus a kuf is 204. So tzaddik is 204. Russia is 570. What's the difference between them? Between 204 and 570, you have 366. That's what's missing. Beneath every Russia is a hidden tzaddik. Every person, even if he's a Russia, someone who is behaving in a wicked way, beneath them, there is a tzaddik. There is, there's a spark of goodness. There's a neshama. There's a Jewish soul. What we just need to do is remove the layers of evil and we will find his goodness. Externally, it seems bad, but deep down, there's something good. There's positivity. So what do we have to do in order to get to the essence, the core of his goodness? We have to blunt his teeth. In Hebrew, shinav. His 
teeth. But the word for his teeth in Hebrew is shinov. How do you spell shinov, his teeth in Hebrew? Shin nun yudvav. Shin is 300, nun is 50, yud is 10, vav is 6, 366. You have to blunt his teeth. You have to blunt his word, which means it has the numerical value of 366. You see a Russia, a Russia is the numerical value of 570. You see somebody 570, you have to remove, you have to blunt his teeth, which equals 366. You see 570, you have to remove 366. What happens if you remove 366 from 570? You get 204. 204 is a tzaddik. Defang the Russia, and you will find his inner tzaddik. Beautiful. You see a Russia. Russia, wicked. Russia in Hebrew equals 570. What do you have to do? Remove his teeth. In Hebrew, his teeth equals 366. If you remove 366 and 570, you get 204. 204 equals the word tzaddik, which is righteous, because everybody has righteousness in him. You just have to remove the Russia. It's there in him. In the 570, you have it. You just have to remove the negativity. And that's the depth of what the Haggadah is telling us, which comes from the... Um, which comes from the Haggadah telling us that we need to find the goodness even in somebody who is, seems to be wicked. And this, we can go on and on, giving examples. Just want to give uh, one that the Rebbe would say, mention that the address for Chabad Lubavitch headquarters in Crown Heights is 770 Eastern Parkway. Now 770 is like the the engine where all of the Rebbe's inspiration and guidance to reach out to Jewish people around the world and bring them closer to their Jewish roots with love, compassion, and uh, lack of judgment came from 770. And it's no coincidence that this was the address. And you take the word 770, you take the, the number 770, and you take the word paratsta. Paratsta is the word that the Torah said, God says to Jacob that you will Spread forth. Paratsta is the numerical value of 770. Because from here, we spread forth and to all Jewish people around the world to teach them, to bring them closer, and tell them how special they are being a member of the Jewish people. So, thank you for joining us for today's lesson. It can be a little overwhelming for someone who is not uh, accustomed to gematria, this math, but it's a method that is not so hard to learn. And there are many, many more facets and parts to this gematria, how it works exactly. But this is a general overview. We saw some examples in Jewish Agada, in Jewish stories of the Torah, in Jewish law, how it relates to gematria, and in Kabbalah, how Hebrew words are inherently valuable. There is a uh, numerical value to them, and they can represent and be connected to other words and teach us about life, teach us the hidden secret codes of the Torah. So thank you for joining. I hope you enjoyed. And I just want to share a story. I know it's late, but if you want, if those that want to stay on and listen, um, the story is like this. We mentioned the Ramban, Nachmanides. Thank you, Jody, for the feedback. Much appreciated. If anybody has any feedback, we'd love to see it. And everyone is encouraged to share this post. Others can benefit from it as well. Um, Story of Nachmanides. Hello, Eddie. Oded. The story of Nachmanides. Ravenu Moshe ben Nachman. Again, he lived in the 13th century in the early 1200s. And many books we have from him. There's a synagogue in Jerusalem called the Ramban. In Hebrew, it's Ramban. Ravenu Moshe ben Nachman. 
not to be confused with Rambam, which is Maimonides, who Nachmanides was about 10 years old when Maimonides passed away in 1204. He was the next kind of world leader of Jew- world Jewry. And when he came to Israel in the 1260s, so he established a synagogue, which was, I guess, rebuilt or reestablished after the Six-Day War when the old city of Jerusalem was uh, reconquered. And it can be visited. I visited the synagogue today. It's beautiful. So Nachmanides had a student who strayed from the way of the Torah to the other extreme. You know, he would eat pork on Yom Kippur and cook it with milk and, you know, do all the worst transgressions that the Torah would say in front of his teacher. Some chutzpah he had. So the Rahman is once asked him, like, what, what led you astray? Well, what, what was the issue? Why did you uh, go so far? And he said, because it's your fault, you know, blaming the teacher. He said, what did I do? Because you once told us that in the second to the last portion of the book of Devarim, Hazinu, the last, second to the last portion, the song that Moses sang uh, for the Jewish people, it's like a poem before his passing. We'll read it in a couple of weeks. You once said that in that song, it's like 40 verses, everything is hinted in there. Everything is encoded, embedded in this song. Every creation, every story, everything is in there. And I said, how can that be? In a few couple of verses. And that's, if I said, if that's not true, then everything else you tell me is, uh, isn't true. So I dropped it all. Nachmanides told him, I still stand by what I said. So he said, the student said, really? So tell me, where am I hinted in this poem, in this verse, in these verses, in this portion of the Torah? Where's my name? His name was Avner. Nachmanides went to the corner, he prayed to God. He returned, showed him the verse. Amarti af ehem ashbisa me'anosh zichram. You can look it up in the verse. In Hebrew that means, I said, I will spread them out, I will erase from mankind their memory. He said, every third letter, these five words, every third letter spells Reb Avner in Hebrew. Rabbi Avner. There's your name. Every third letter of this verse. Student was flabbergasted. He realized his mistake and how authentic and genuine the teachings of Nachmanides were, even things that are not always so comprehensible unless you look under the microscope. And he says, it says the story, he took a boat, he went out to sea and he was never heard of again. Fulfilling what the verse said, you know, that his memory will be uh, obliterated, obl- forgotten. But what's fascinating is that Nachmanides told him that the way this individual was encoded in the Torah was not Avner. He was a wicked man at the time. He had sinned a lot. You know, not very pious. But yet, the way his name was found in the Torah was Reb Avner, like Rabbi Avner, as if he's like a prestigious man. Because that's the core. The core is the 204. We just have to remove the 366 from the Russia. At the core, everyone has that in him, in her. And that can never be extinguished. It's indestructible. Thank you for joining today's lesson 202 for Gimatria, exploring this element of 
Torah teaching. Again, this is desserts. They're called parparaot, like you might smear some butter, smear some butter on your bread, or have uh, some ice cream. It's not the main meal. It's not how we go about studying. But once we have an established connection, we can find allusions and hints in the Torah to uh, things that happen, to ideas of Jewish law. And it can tell us and uncover for us, like looking into a microscope, what is going on deeper than reality and enhance our lives and take inspiration from these ideas. Zai gesund and have a wonderful day.